Welcome to the Emerging Biotech Leader, where we help biotech leaders maximize the value of their therapeutics from translational development to product launch. We're your hosts. I'm Kim Kushner. And I'm Ramin Farhood. We are here to help you navigate the pitfalls of the biotech industry and illuminate the path forward. Welcome to today's episode of the Emerging Biotech Leader. Before I jump in, I am neither Kim nor Ramin, who have doing, been doing a bang-up job of this podcast, but my name is Doug Locke. And I'm interviewing someone today whom I've had the pleasure of working with professionally. So we hope to tease out uh, a few items of company building and executive leadership based on our interaction. At least that's the hope. If we fall flat, it won't be because of today's tremendous guest. It will be because of this facilitation. But uh, today we're meeting with Alain Ganeau. He and his wife, Annie, co-founded Solve Biosciences. And we hope that his nearly decade-long journey to build a biotech company among some of the other challenges of, of uh, being a CEO resonate with, with our listeners and uh, so excited to have him. Very standard career background, you know, typical stuff. He was a soldier, a lawyer, an investment banker, a biotech exec, and a devoted family man throughout. So, you know, you know run-of-the-mill stuff. Welcome to the show, Alon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Doug. It's nice to be here. All right. I teased it up already. Such an interesting vocational path and, and background. What of those roles kind of shaped your executive, uh, you know, background and approach to working with people? You know, I almost look back at my career and think that I went through quite a lot of stops along the way to figure out things I don't want to do. You know, growing up in Israel, the the, the army piece is is not discretionary. I did four years of it. And, you know, at the end, I realized that I definitely do not want to stay as a soldier for very much longer. And I didn't have any great ideas, so I went to law school and I became a lawyer. Uh, and after two years, I was confident that that is another thing I don't want to be doing long term. Um, so I, I, I went to business school and after that became an investment banker. And I did that for about a decade. And... Uh, that I actually thought was better suited for my uh, interests and skill set. Um, but then life happened and, uh, you know, I'm, I know you're aware and, uh, and, and the uh, listeners may as well too. My son was diagnosed with a really bad uh, condition called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And uh, that sort of set us on a path to, yeah, to leave a lot of things behind, move to Boston and start a biotech company to, to try them, to try and help, to try to do whatever we can. You know, just thinking about that path, it is truly unique. I don't know any other leader that's, that's had that, you know, that type of uh, prior steps in their career. It's, it almost feels like you need pieces of all those things to actually be a leader, you know, soldier, lawyer, investment banker. I'm sure they all came in handy. Uh, you know, the, the experiences came in handy building the company. So let's just talk about that for a minute. Were there any leadership styles or learnings you were exposed to? You said, yeah, I want to, I'm going to grab that and take it with me on my journey. All the time. Um, and, you know, in, in many ways, no experience is bad experience. And yes, mine was fairly diverse, but we're also talking over 30 years. Um, so I think there is a, there is something to be said for the, military service around I was 17 and a half when I joined the Israeli army. It's, it's, it's something you kind of grow up knowing you will do. And then when you do it, I think it matures you fairly quickly. 
um, a lot of my friends in the US and in other places around the world around the same age, they sort of figure out what they're going to do at college for the next four years. And I'm going to suggest that four years um, in uniform and four years in uh, in college are, are very different experiences as they relate to the kind of person you are going to be in the future. I think we learn a lot more about responsibility. I think, uh, you know, I, I, I was an officer early. I, I was commanding a couple hundred soldiers at the age of 20. You know, it's not exactly something you do. And, and although most of the time you're not in combat, there are definitely moments where that responsibility sinks in. And, uh, and, and I think you come out of it um, a bit more of a grown-up. Um, you know, then we got education, uh, of course, um, legal experience is, is valuable, uh, almost everything, uh, especially as the company later on matured and solid went public and, you know, you, you end up working with lawyers all the time. Uh, uh, you know, there are big issues with uh, running uh, uh, companies, with, with managing a big number of employees, with contracts with uh, labor law with a whole bunch of uh, issues where having legal education experience is valuable um and and you know over the years in law firm seeing the, the the partners of the firm learning from them understanding how they treat their customers how they treat their employees you learn a lot from from all of that my years on wall street were probably the most relevant because i learned a lot about uh, corporate business, whether it's America or Europe or Asia, all the places that I had a good opportunity to work in. Um, you, you constantly see good leaders and bad leaders. You constantly see um, big people that know how to motivate their teams and people that are just doing this to get away with it. Um, you, you see people who stay in the job for a long time and those that do it for two or three years and then move on. Um, investment banking is a tough business. Uh, so there's a lot of competition to consider. There's a lot of um, what goes around the markets, understanding cycles, understanding stock markets, understanding financings. Clearly running a biotech company in many ways is predominantly about access to capital and allowing some really smart people do research uh, to help patients. And and so the CEO's job is unique because it's that access to capital. Without it, there's no business. Uh, I was obviously not the strongest guy in the lab. Uh, they don't even allow me in there anymore. So, you know, it's not uh, something I have any strength in. But I, I'd like to believe that my ability to select smart, capable individuals um, something I've done over the years in different functions translated pretty well uh, to building a biotech company as well. Um, so, you know, there's lots of anecdotes and stories from different paths and then we can go into some of that if you want. But in general, I think who you are as a CEO is a, basically a portfolio of your values, of, of, of how you were raised at home. And then once you broke out on your own, the choices you made, the people you learned from, and you try to bring it all every day to work. Yeah, hoping to explore some of your special sauce. We'll talk about later, like the dedication of the team around you and something super special. I've witnessed firsthand, so I'm going to hit that later. But I, I agree with you. you. You're a portfolio of the leaders you've been exposed to and the experiences that you've engendered. Is there any one experience you think of 
that you said, I, I need to pull this into my portfolio, a leader showing, you know, something to you in a moment. Sometimes they're just, you know, 30 second encounters, but they're so meaningful. Is there anything like that in your career? A couple stick out, uh, you know, going to business school back in the day was a big decision. It involved borrowing a lot of money and counting on being able to find a job after business school that would pay back, you know, two years of living and studying in London with no income, um, as well as figure out a work visa with an Israeli passport. That wasn't a, you know, an obvious thing to do. Um, so... You know, about a year into my uh, banking experience, I remember uh, somebody I was working closely with and learning a lot from was poached to go work for another bank. And a really big guy on the floor, uh, on the trading floor, this was at Lehman Brothers 2003 or four, walked out of his big corner office, came to my desk and asked me if I have five minutes. I said, sure. And he called me and he asked me to come to his office. And I came in and he said, look, I know your friend and mentor is uh, going somewhere else. But I want you to know that we've been really impressed with everything that you've done so far. And we want to make sure that you'll be staying with us and are happy here. And, you know, I told him I was really happy. I was learning a lot. And then he said, uh, is there anything that bothers you is there anything that's on your mind is there anything we can do to help and i was like you know now that you're asking i have this hundred thousand dollar in student loans that you know is sort of sitting on my shoulders and uh, and weighing me down he said okay and about a month later i was called into the office again and they handed me a letter that said if you stay here for two years we'll pay your student loan and that was it. I had no plans of leaving anyway. I would have stayed there for another 20 if Lehman hadn't gone bust. Uh, and if I didn't find Duchenne uh, standing in my way. But but that's a kind of memory that I think helped me adjust and also implement this kind of personal hand-holding, at least of the better performers, where you want people to, first of all, be seen and then be listened to and, you know, as a leader, you have the ability to be creative, whether it's with money or it's with terms of work. Um, during COVID, I early, early on in March, um, when I was run, running solid, I uh, remember my COO called me and said, look, we have a problem. There's this woman that commutes from the Cape every day. Uh, and she does this assay in the lab that nobody else knows how to do. And they just canceled all the buses. And obviously the labs are still open because it's essential, but she has no way of getting in and out of the office every day. And I remember standing in my driveway, looking towards the garage and seeing three cars and nobody's driving anywhere. Right. This is like early days of COVID. We think it's going to take a couple of weeks. And in the meantime, nobody's going anywhere. So I said to him, listen, tell her to Uber back to my house. I went, I took my car, I got it all clean, ready for her. And she comes in, she sees my, Adam. I have a nice car. So she gets into my car. She's super excited. She's like, when do you want it back? And I'm like, I don't know, whenever this is over. A year later and 30,000 miles, <laughs> I got my car back. And, uh, and, you know, she and I are still joking about, that great year she had in my convertible in the Cape. 
Uh, well, none of that surprises me. I've seen your generosity and your what your giving nature to employees over and over again. So clearly, that is one of your one of your secret sauce attributes. But since you started talking about, it, let's shift there. Let's talk about solid. Obviously, personally, you know, evoked by this, one of your children doing battle with the Shen, as you said. Um, but that somehow led to the birth of the company. I, you know, I know we you've talked about this in other podcasts, but you know, in a minute or two, how did that? move to the, the birth of, of Salad and you know, how did you do that? I, I've been telling that story for years now and uh, there is no real formula and I, in fact, often caution people from trying uh, to do these kind of things because in many ways it, it has to do with the circumstances and Annie and I, as a family and the friends and network that we had when Eitani was diagnosed with Duchenne in 2012, sort of positioned us to go and try to do something a little crazy. Um, it, it, it sort of came out of this necessity and hopelessness, looking at the landscape for treatment and thinking, shit, that's not good enough. You know, as parents of a two and a half year old, that by the way has no idea something is wrong with him, but something is really wrong with him. We just thought maybe we can do something different. Maybe we can do more. And we weren't naive, just, you know, believing in ourselves blindly. We did a lot of diligence. We learned a lot about, you know, the biotech ecosystem, about where money comes from, how research gets translated what early stage science could be relevant for a disease of this nature. And over that sort of period of time, decided to give it a go. I had the good fortune of, at the time working for JP Morgan, walking up to the CEO, still the CEO, now Jamie Diamond, and saying to him, listen, Jamie, this, that happened to my son. I'm going to quit working for you. He, he didn't know me, of course. I quit working for you, but I'm going to try to do something to help him. He's like, you know, we'll do what we can. And about a year later, JP Morgan led a $5 million out of 15 end up being $17 million round. That's all it got going with. And it was, you know, it was different. It, back in the day, you know, companies were mostly starting in Boston out of VCs, uh, Third Rock and Flagship and Polaris, and those guys were spinning out, you know, um, many other investors were kind of getting up to speed and started creating companies. And so I, I, I took a, a different path, uh, getting together with other people, getting a little bit of uh, seed money, um, and then getting serious about Duchenne. And, uh, and, and, and it, it worked out pretty well. It sounds to me, and I don't want to be trite with it, but equal parts, you know, soldier, lawyer, and investment banker, and entrepreneur in that phase. I mean, I, I, I listened to another podcast where you presented that you were doing research on your BlackBerry, you know, on a vacation, f figuring it all out. And I think the standard of care at the time was steroids and it wasn't good enough for you. I mean, it's just still is amazing, you know, the, the endeavor. Um, but let's talk about doing something that's never been done before, because you went from that research to doing something never done before. Obviously, very complex disease state, many organs evolved, challenging approach, and, and you you picked a micro microdistrophin approach, you know, gene packed in an, an AAV th uh, construct, super challenging, never been done. So talk about bringing the company into the clinic with something that had never been done before. 
One of the things that we did a little differently was that instead of focusing on a technology and identifying which diseases it could work in, we had a disease to start with. And so the first six or so months of solid was really me, uh, my partners at the board level, and one guy we hired, Joel Schneider, who were canvassing anything under the sun to see where a little bit of money can push the needle uh, towards patients. And, and there were a lot of interesting ideas out there. There were CRISPR ideas, there were gene therapies, there were exon skippings, there were small molecules. There were a number of different thoughts. Obviously, Duchenne is a genetic disease where the biggest problem is a single gene that's defective. And so the appetite to address the root cause of that disease with a gene replacement therapy is always there. And right around then, I'm thinking this is 2013, 14, 14, 2014 probably, we've already seen a lot of great work in mice and people just started scratching the surface in dogs. We have, we have dog models for Duchenne that that are, are not a bad proxy for the disease, certainly better than the, the MDX mouse. And really with that, around the same time, in Ohio, Jerry Mendel was treating a few babies with SMA1, a horrible disease, with a drug that later on became Zolgensma. But at the time, uh, it was still very early on, Ohio nationwide, um, kind of vector they used to make it their own, uh, you know, vector core, pretty uh, early days, before even Avexis became a company. So, you know, Joel and I and a couple of other people looked at that data and we're like, this is it. This is what we got to do. We have access to all the best scientists, been doing this for 20 or 30 years with um, Indushen, in mice, uh, with AAV. Um, so we sort of looped in a lot of the best people and there's great pictures showing how we got everybody into Cambridge for kind of a science day to evaluate the feasibility of an AAV gene therapy treatment for Duchenne. Uh, we knew we had to go to all the muscles in the body, so it's a high systemic dose in older kids. It's not the babies that were just born with SMA, so the amount of virus is critical. Manufacturing is always going to be a big challenge. Which AAV do we choose? We end up with AAV9, mostly because of the Avexis experience in SMA1. At the time, that was the only vector that had successfully and safely been to humans at the high systemic dose. We knew we were going to be at those high doses. And we basically, uh, at the time, we looked in Jim Wilson and Jeff Chamberlain and Dong Sheng Duan and all the guys that spent their whole career. And somehow nobody was there to say, let's just go for it. Let's find a way. Let's fund it. Let's make enough vector. Let's do the right preclinical package. Let's write this IND. And those the, the patients. Um, it just happened that around the same time, we showed a lot of early stage data, both to Sarepta and to Pfizer. Both of them ended up going doing other similar programs, which is great. I, I feel we enabled a, a real wave of, of potential treatments for, for Duchenne patients. And, you know, with that, we really got going about a year later, once we generated our own data in dogs uh, we were able to, to raise a lot more money and and really start building a gene therapy company 
to help kids with the shell. I don't want to be trite with the question. Any quick anecdotes from taking the company public during this process? Obviously, it, it, it created some challenges as, as, as some benefits to the company, but... Ironically, going public uh, isn't something I really wanted to do. You know, unlike many other CEOs, it wasn't like I was like, oh my God, I can't wait to be an American biotech CEO uh, trading in NASDAQ. It was never on my list of to-dos. Um, but, you know, after the data started coming in a promising way and the valuation was increasing and we were kind of maxing out on our ability to raise private money um, because of this, you know, the, the, the structure of the biotech funding environment, certainly at the time. Um, around 2016, 2017, a lot of companies successfully went public and raised a significant amount of money, including Avexis, including Odentis, including Regenex, including Rocket. And it sort of became obvious that that is the path forward. And so we spent most of 2017 uh, riding this one. Uh, while filing the IND and getting green light from the FDA to go to the clinic. And in January 2018, we, we listed on NASDAQ, pretty eventful, a uh, couple of weeks. Um, and about a month later, started our clinical trial. So, you know, long story short, I would recommend people not to go public as they dose their first patient, certainly when safety is questionable and unknown. Too many life events at once, same proxy, right? You get all these things going on at the company. You're very challenging uh, because you start walking into materiality issues that you didn't have to deal with as a private company. As a private company, you have five, seven investors. Something happens, you give them a call, you're open with them, you can share, they can look at data. We can together figure things out. As a public company, you are dealing with a whole different set of circumstances. Now you have lawyers talking about materiality. You have a few days that you have to disclose. You find yourself disclosing during uncertain periods. You know, you have to disclose a clinical hold when you don't actually know what went wrong in the clinic yet because the kid is still recovering and we're still evaluating what's going on. We don't know what next steps are. Um, and yet... You have to talk about them uh, publicly in a conference call and answer analyst questions because hours later, people are writing reports on this. So it ended up, and I had a great board member who said, don't, let's not do this. It's too early. Um, but that was, uh, that was a good advice that was hard to accept. There was no other, there was no other way to get $150 million and, and start developing a drug in earnest basically pragmatism dictate you know cmc and and the clinical cost you know pathway for the company indicated this had to happen in order to pursue you know what you were going after you, like you said no one was there charting the pathway for you you just knew you needed this capital and you knew it would be a capital intensive process specifically for manufacturing and, and other challenges of the clinical pathway so pragmatism got you there as opposed to an intent and that's probably your guidance you know uh, use it as a choice of pragmatism, not as a target in and of itself. That sounds like what you'd say to an executive that's that's uh, coming up to the ranks. Is that right? Yeah. Hey, let's shift gears. I want to make sure we get to some really, I think, special parts of your toolkit that I, I sit in awe of frequently. Um, but before before I, I shift to dedication, which is an area I think you, you instill in, in a lot of people around you, which is very impressive. What piece of advice would you give to the Alan of 10 years ago? If you could, you know, just don't you know again i 
uh, I don't want to be simplistic with it, but what would you what would you coach yourself on if starting over again? Where I could have done better is um, cho- which is easier said than done is choosing more wisely the one or two people that really influence the decisions that you make. Um, it's difficult. It's it's nobody's. Every time we do something like this that's not been done before, um, there is no book to reference. There is nobody that's done it five times already and you and just knows what's right and wrong. There is a ton of improvisation, a ton of risk taking, and but but still, uh, you know, there there are people that have better experience than others and. Um, you know, back in the day, I had some incredible access to Henry Termeer, for example, was the CEO of uh, Genzyme back in the day and, uh, you know, one of the most important leaders in the rare disease community. And unfortunately, he passed a few years ago uh, unexpectedly. But I sort of wished I'd leaned more on his advice. I'd listened to him more. I'd asked him more regularly um, to help me think through decisions, maybe find another way to get him more involved in the company. Uh, there's been another three or four of those. It is not always easy to get the attention that you would like because those people tend to be busy, tend to be dealing with their own issues. And even if they're retired, then now they're probably on five boards and they're not. So as a CEO, one of the most important parts of your job, which is not exactly in the job description, is to create that network of support, advice, and intelligence around you, whether it's formal or informal. It could be on your board. It could be on your scientific advisory board. It could be people that work for you. It could be friends that have great experience. So, you know, surrounding yourself with the people that because the job itself is lonely and oftentimes and this happened to me interestingly in the clinical setting more often than i wanted it to be uh, and and that's uh, partly where we were working together doug with ssi is i sit there uh, with no medical degree and i need to decide which doctor i should support and I got three saying one thing and three saying the other. And they're all better than me. They're all more experienced than me. They're all real physicians with real experience. And they cannot agree between them. And I have to choose. So those are the kind of moments where you're like, wow, this is a, this is a tough job. And, uh, and, and, and if there was somebody I could, with my eyes closed, you know, go to and say, here's the options. What would you do? Um, I maybe would have made better choices over the years. I would imagine even that would be distributed amongst a, a, a group of individuals, as you know, as a, as opposed to one person that could actually coach on all of those scenarios. And I would also think it's also who not to listen to and what what paths not to take. Those are also critical CEO type decisions. And in that journey, I'm sure you you know had your had your challenges figuring out which some of those people were as 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 you worked with them. Should I be listening or not, or should I be you know at least listening to but but putting compartmentalizing in some way hindsight is 2020 here and you know but it's going through the motions when you you gotta you know you gotta make some decisions on your feet and you at that point it's too late to start reaching out to people 
Um, you know, you, you build that network before you need to use it. Yes. And then it's there for you or it's not there for you. Um, you know, there's a lot of other traps. Uh, some people are very vocal, others are mm-hmm. not. And how do you allow the not so vocal people to still, you know, how do you create an environment where they are still heard? Because oftentimes they are better the advice you need in the particular moment. All good thoughts. So network building, you know, advising the group around you to lean on and and pulling things out of the team around you, maybe introvert, extrovert kind of challenges that you face or the quiet leaders. Yeah, and creating creating a support base. Makes sense. And I think you've been exceptional at building a support base around you through clinical committee, advisory array, you know, and, and friends. You like if if you if you hear a story about Alon, the word friends is gonna come up. Like literally every time I've seen you speak or talk, it comes up because you've built friends in all those vocations. You've done it, you've done it here today. Uh, so it's it's it is one of your your secret sauce, you know, building these lifelong or long term relations that that might may or may not come in handy. But I'm sure there's other reasons for friendship and such. But you're 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 an expert. Well, there's two things in this that are different, I think, and that came very naturally to me. First of all, it's this isn't something I wanted to do. This is something I felt I was drawn into. I had an opportunity to make a difference. I had a chance to maybe help a whole lot of sick people and a whole lot of family members and communities around them. You know, so I came to this with the best intentions. And I think that came across in my interactions with investors, with employees, with government agencies, with uh, consultants, with everybody, right? I mean, this is and the other piece of it was, and that's a conversation I remember having with Annie, my wife, early in the days. And I said to her, you know, if we're going to do this, I got to do it my way. And I can't pretend like I know what I'm doing because I don't. I haven't done this before. I never ran a company before. I never did. When I was on Wall Street, the one sector I wasn't doing a lot of was healthcare because it was quite specialized and there were enough MDs and PhDs around that, you know, understood biology better. But when you are a CEO of a company, yeah, you can have all these people around, but the buck stops here, right? You still have to make those final decisions and you got to decide who to bring in and who not to and who to listen to and who not. So I came to this, if you like, with my, uh, uh, you know, my, heart open and as open-minded, as honest as I can be. I have some strengths, sure, but I also have a ton of weaknesses and I'm not pretending to know any of this. I'm learning on the go. I'm improvising. I'm doing my best. If you think I'm wrong, please come and tell me. If you have any advice, if you have any thoughts, if you disagree, no shame in it. And I think that transparency, openness, and maybe even humility is what turned people into big fans and, and big part of the, of the solid community. Because um, we're really trying to do our best here for patients in, an, in a tough, tough disease and in a field that's not really been, you know, um, exposed to that type of, of work much before. I promise to get you out of here. Uh, we could talk for, for two more hours about this, but you hit the two threads I wanted to draw out in, in, in you. 
One is this dedication thread, and the second is this honesty thread. So you hit them both in that in that overview. But what, what's unique about you is this, you know, and there's a lot of great leaders out there that create, you know, dedication and, and people that are, walk through walls for them and, and, and you know, do, do what's right for the company and keep the person in the company in mind in all cases. So there's other good leaders out there. Usually that kind of that kind of penetration is like the the inner circle. It doesn't usually cascade to the entire organization. And in your case, it seemed like it did. How do you think, you know, how do you think you created that kind of bond with, with the community of Solid? Well, I have a kid at home with Duchenne. And Annie, my wife, is head of patient advocacy. Everybody knows our family. People come to our house. We bring the kids to the office. We do a whole lot of engagement with other families with Duchenne. The walls of Solids are covered with uh, stories of families all over the world with pictures and their struggle and, you know, triumph and experience with Duchenne. Um, I think it's the honesty again. The, you know, we're not doctoring it. We're not trying hard, not bending over backwards to convince people that we're about the patients. We're just about the, it's just the way it is. It's not something we need to work so hard to demonstrate. It comes naturally. It attracts the right kind of people. You know, we are obviously respectful of everybody and we, we try to do the right thing by everybody. Um, in business as well as uh, outside of the firm, of the company so it's a, i just think it's it's something that because of the setup and because of the mindset that we went into this with ended up creating this this great culture of of people that are trying to do what they can to help kids well culture you know it certainly goes goes a long way you're you're an incredible culture builder but you know people remember how you make them feel so I think you're an expert in making people like that that person that took you aside in that meeting, making them feel good. And the honesty thread, you know, it's refreshing to hear an executive be open and honest about not knowing something. And you are you are unabashed about that. You'll I don't know what that word is. I don't understand what, what we're saying. You'll throw that on the table. Uh, that's a style, I think, refreshing and helpful to corporate building. Would you agree? I remember starting on the trading floor right out of business school. And I was also the whole English thing because obviously it's my second language and I was quite insecure. And I remember the first few weeks, all the older dudes on the floor were using all these language, all this um, lingo was really scaring me. I, I One of my first vacations back to Israel, I was sitting with a friend in the bar and I was like, dude, I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can be like them. I don't even understand what they're saying. It took me about six months and I was probably better than all of them because at the end of the day, sometimes in business, people put up walls to create these barriers to entry so that the juniors have more tough time and they respect them more and they really think there's more to it than there really is. And look, the same thing is happening in biotech and it's not always intentional. It's not always evil, but it definitely you know, scares away people that don't necessarily have the right background. If you come to the room and first thing you're like, okay, what's a TPP? I'm sorry. Somebody tell me what's a TPP. And then they're like, oh, it's a, it's this and that. And that's how we do it. And here's our three examples. Guess what? 20 minutes later, I'm going to know everything I need to know about a TPP. 
and I can weigh in on how to write one. I may not be the one taking the lead, but I can definitely add some value. Happens all the time. Um, obviously, the medical profession is, is not straightforward. You have to go to school for many years. Biology is complicated. Human biology is extremely complicated. Um, genetics, the field that we're operating in, is everything is new. None of this was possible even 10 years ago. Um, some of it is not even possible now. So I think the more you are transparent and open about what you know and you don't know, the easier it is for other people to contribute where they have an edge uh, to kind of get the, the bus going better forward. It requires constitution and confidence in self to, to be that person. Uh, I certainly appreciate it in you. Uh, last area question. We need to let you get on with your day. Thanks you know, for all these, these great thoughts and, and your time here, my friend. Um, team building. You've always been very open, and this may, may be involving our company a bit, SSI. We've been working with Solid for some time. You were quite open to best athlete, best team structure, and, and there's a growing group of executives that, that feel in kind. And, and then there's a community that's a little more conventional. Just any thoughts about the process? You know, did full-time equivalents or employees versus consultant teams, you know, embedding those types of issues. Did you see any big differences between the populations and any, any you know, regret or, or you know, perceived uh, changes you would have made? Yeah, so it's, a, it's an interesting question because my view on that has matured over time, um, a little bit like how my view on work from home versus not work from home, how COVID had that influence that we realized we can actually be effective um, although now you can see the trend back towards, yeah, we can be effective, but we don't get the same culture and we don't get the same learnings and the, the young are not enjoying the benefit of the old and all that. So as far as full-time employee versus working with consultants, you know, coming back from my previous background, consultants weren't really something you would be using very often. People would build companies, would hire, whether it's lawyers or bankers full-time, People would be exclusively working, fully dedicated, and part of the company. Moving into biotech, there were definitely a lot more virtual models out there than I had previously seen. And initially, I thought it was half-assed. I thought, these are all part-timers. They're not really doing it for the kids. You know, the second they get another option, they go somewhere else. They're probably always looking for a job. And I wasn't a big fan. My mind has changed a little, maybe even a lot. But I think it's more about the circumstances. When I started working with SSI and you, Doug, and your excellent team, you know, it was at the advice of a board member uh, who I respect a lot. And he was on your podcast earlier. Uh, and he said, look, when we were at Avexis, these guys were super helpful. You should talk to them. At the time, I had a good chief medical officer, and I felt like I had the right support system on the board and around it. But what I very quickly learned is that with working with SSI and with uh, working with a couple of other good consulting groups that we have over the years, you are bringing some very surgical expertise that you may just not have at home. And the clinical office, the medical office has a lot of different parts to it, some of which I wasn't even aware existed. And whichever uh, leadership you have in the company may or may not be excellent 
at all of them, probably not. Nobody's really good at everything. Some people are great at metaphors, some people are great at communication, some people are excellent doctors, but don't really know how to manage a team. Some are excellent managers, but make terrible clinical decisions. Having the access to a little bit of everything that you need at a very high level with what I consider the secret sauce for your people, Doug, which is that little back office operation that takes them up a couple of notches on deliverables, slides, communication, messaging, things that often doctors especially don't think is as important as getting the diagnosis right or getting the treatment right or getting the patient better. Um, in, in corporate America, you need to be able to tell a story. You need to be able to, 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 to transform data. You need to be able to show glimpses of excitement when it exists and show the right place in the right way to the right people. Um, I found that working with consultants can often upgrade the operation in a meaningful way, whether it's because you have gaps, which everybody does, or it's because you are bringing in some real experts and you can learn from them and, and how to do things. So I would say that at this point, I believe that um, it's great to have a core team uh, because you grow together and you go through the development process together. Um, but nobody's perfect. And there's always more to learn from others. And so if you can broaden that through kind of surgical use of experts outside, I think that's a great way to do it. Last question on this topic and, and then uh, we'll close out. Did you sense any, you know, retrospectively, any difference in control? Because that seems to be one of the variables you mentioned earlier when you maybe you were less bullish on on externals, consultants, or what have you. Did you sense any difference in, you know, I think a fear attribute of executives is they don't control, you know, FTEs. It seems like it just feels like there's, a, you know, maybe uh, the perception there's more control, but it can be an illusion at times as, as you and I both know, but where do you sit on it, you know, retrospectively? I don't think you can just make the statement that control is better if that person is an employee, because it depends on the person. I personally have worked with excellent people I had 100% confidence in, but I also worked with very smart people that I never knew where I was standing with. And they did a good job, but they controlled the communication coming out of their function. And, you know, I sometimes had to pull and pull and pull and in order to get the right answers. And even then those answers were already tainted by some of their views data gets released or distributed when they feel like it's the right moment as opposed to where maybe it is the right. So oftentimes working with consultants, you may even have better control over the deliverables. Um, it's easier to increase their work or reduce it based on outcomes and satisfaction. Not as easy to do with FTEs. You know, finding a great chief medical officer or a VP of clinical operations, those could be, you know, six to nine month searches, and then you end up with somebody terrible. So, you know, it's not always slam dunk. We've worked through years in Cambridge where it was very difficult to get talent because every company was raising $200 million and hiring like crazy. Now, those days are gone, um, and I hope they'll be back, but they're not here yet.
Um, and but, but in general, fighting for for talent is always a ch- I, even in bad years, great talent is hard to find. Uh, one of the biggest challenges uh, in leadership is to find great people. Using uh, groups like yours, um, either to train the ones you have to close the gaps that you have, or even longer term, because it's working out well, I think is a great uh, tool in the hand of a CEO. Thank you for all the great thoughts there. Alan, you know, uh, as, a, as a business partner, I want to thank you, but also a participant here today as a guest. Thank you for your time. What, what's next before we, we close up shop? Well, I want to spend a lot more time with my wife and kids. Um, it's been a long 10 years. Um, and, you know, my son is more advanced with the disease now and needs more of my personal time here with him at home. We made fish together last night at a great time. Um, I think that I learned a lot and can probably use my experience to help other young companies uh, be successful in how they position themselves and how they access markets and capital and in how they uh, help patients. And I am being approached by many people to do that. I'm obviously still fully committed to solid. I'm still a board member and uh, consulting to the new leadership that I am uh, excited about seeing, you know, what the new solid looks like. Um, my son's bar mitzvah this June. Uh, so organizing some of that and uh, maybe playing a bit more tennis and pickleball, you know? Well, I'll look forward to uh, uh, a tennis or pickleball match in the near future and maybe a drink sometime soon. Alan, can't thank you enough. Uh, I think you'd be great at all the things you said are next. I think a few would be better. Uh, so good luck on the journey and, and thanks for our collaboration. Thanks for having me, Doug. Good to see you. Hi to everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Emerging Biotech Leader, an SSI strategy podcast. Join us each month for more conversations with biotech leaders. If you'd like to help navigating the complexities of biotech, reach out to our team at SSIStrategy.com. Don't forget to hit subscribe and leave a review.